I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Thursday, March 14th, 2019, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Past presidents thought it undignified to announce their intention. The hat was simply in the ring, and it was known, or the name wasn't floated until the convention. Then, as the TV era dawned, there were backdrops, or at least seriousness of purpose. Here is how Ronald Reagan announced his run for the 1980 election. Ladies and gentlemen, Ronald Reagan. Good evening. That's all you have to say. A stentorian announcer, a suit-wearing president, a leather chair. He rises from the leather chair to address the audience. He is dignified, as dignified as a leather chair. Now, that video is not from exactly 40 years ago. It is from 39 years, four months ago. Such was the political calendar in those days. But these days, well, Beto O'Rourke does a journal, concocts a vision board, I don't know, maybe take some peyote, pose for an Annie Leibovitz photo that could be on the latest Alan Jackson album cover, and most notably, and this is the big one, texts KTSM El Paso. Texts KTSM. The Beto O'Rourke story was the top story in the KTSM Video Center. I now bring you the second biggest story in KTSM's Video Vault. Flynn is at the dog park with Dr. Bohm. They're going to be sharing some great tips for getting ready for your trip to the dog park. Make the most out of your trip to the dog park by following these simple guidelines. Step one, bring a dog. Step two, watch for humping. I'm not kidding. Dogs in heat should be left at home and unneutered males should be observed diligently. You know what? There's no reason that we should be punishing Beto O'Rourke, mocking KTSM. Good for him. He, he gave a scoop to the local outlet. I mean, it's not like the guy ate a salad with a comb or claimed a little too much Cherokee heritage or broke the record for presidential lies, threatened the NATO alliance, put babies in cages and called Tim Cook Tim Apple. I mean, those are the deal breakers, right? seems like the biggest knock on Beto O'Rourke is that he lost. He lost his last election. It's usually not phrased as directly as that. It's a little oblique. People say, yeah, he's young, he's energetic, he seemed popular. But, you know, he wasn't so popular as to have defeated Ted Cruz. And because he didn't defeat Ted Cruz, he's not a U.S. senator. And because he's not a U.S. senator, he's just some guy wandering around who's not currently holding an office. I mean, if he had defeated Ted Cruz, there he would be in the U.S. Senate. He was, remember, in the House of Representatives for three terms. So he's a member of the legislature, first elected in 2012 and sworn in in 2013. That's the same as Booker and Warren. Kamala Harris didn't become a legislator until 2017. They all had careers in public service. And in Warren's case, it was in academia and advising an executive branch agency. Beto was a city councilman there in El Paso. So Beto is equally or better prepared than all the non-septuagenarians who are the top few candidates in the race. The problem really comes down to the fact that he lost to Cruz. And it's an issue. When was the last time that America elected a president who was coming off a losing streak? Yes, I know Reagan challenged Forbes. That was a long shot. Really, the last time we went with a loser, a bona fide loser with the stink of loss on him was Richard Nixon. Now, Beto really only lost by 215,000 votes, which ain't a lot in Texas. And this means that if 108,000 Texans changed their minds, Beto O'Rourke would almost certainly be the Democratic frontrunner. 
So we have to ask ourselves, he's not. Does this mean we really trust the judgment and opinions of 108,000 Texans? I've been to a Cowboys home game. I got to say the answer is no. And it's not just 108,000 randomly selected Texans that might make for a good focus group. It is the judgment of 108,000 Texans who voted for Ted Cruz. So my point here is that if we're not for the poor judgment of a few Lone Star lovers of Rafael Edward Cruz, Beto O'Rourke would be the front runner. So I say give Beto a break on this score. After all, Democrats have lost the last 90-something statewide elections in the state of Texas, whereas Democrats have gotten the most votes in six of the last seven presidential elections. Texas, plus nine on the Republican side in the 2016 presidential run. USA, plus two on the Democratic side. Better playing field. And now, with Beto in the race... The Democrats have almost one of everything. You got your old Catholic guy, got your old Jewish guy, you got your black slash South Asian woman, you got your white woman, you got your other white woman, you got your black guy, you got your gay guy, you got your Asian guy. Now you got your post-punk floppy-haired Holden Caulfield-esque striver, KTSM-loving mop-top emo, lovable loser, white guy. Big tent party. On the show today, I spiel about the one jurisdiction that Paul Manafort cannot escape from. But first, Tim Alberta wrote one of the best political pieces of the year so far. What he did was he looked at two neighboring house districts in Minnesota. Both are represented by freshman Democrats. One is a pretty Republican district that went Democrat. The other is a fairly consistently Democratic district. These are the only two districts where a Jew and a Muslim serve side by side. And the only one where you have a freshman who wants to appeal to moderates sitting right next to a representative whose words on Israel prompted her entire party to take time to formally denounce almost every ism we've ever heard of. Politico's Tim Alberta is here to explain how Minnesota's a microcosm of the Democratic Party. Almost a week ago, I read Politico's cover story by Tim Alberta. It was called The Democrats' Dilemma about the tension between moderates who have to serve moderate constituencies and more liberal Democrats who are emboldened to go scorched earth on anything related to Trump and social justice and the Green New Deal, though environmentalists would probably object to literally going scorched earth. The incentives, I thought, I'd been thinking this all along and in reading the article, it really became clear to me. The incentives are fascinating because for the progressives, It's in their interest to put pressure on their more moderate colleagues if they want their agenda to be implemented, but not necessarily if they want to gain seats. For the moderates, it's not so much, shush, you're embarrassing us, as is the worry that their party could squander an opportunity via purity tests and internal squabbling. So what Tim Alberta did was find the perfect synthesis of this tension in two neighboring congressional districts in Minnesota, the third and the fifth. It was this journalistic gem and then cue the shitstorm. Because while Minnesota's third is represented by Dean Phillips, who if you're a political nerd, you've heard of, the fifth is represented by Ilhan Omar. And after a week of debate and watered down resolutions and whataboutism, there in Tim's piece was a fresh quote in which she compared President Trump to President Obama saying the difference is how polished they were. And I think the major point of this excellent article, which we booked before we even knew about the controversy, was lost. Tim joins me now. Thanks for coming on, Tim. It is my pleasure. So I want to get to talk about Omar a little bit, but I want to at least start within the context of the thesis of this piece. 
How scared is Dean Phillips about what his fellow Democrats to his left or way to his left, how scared is he of what they could do to him and the party? Yeah, look, I think he's I think he's terrified. Honestly, you have this whole crop of freshman Democrats who view themselves as the majority makers. And so, of course, when they look to their left and they see the Omars and the AOCs of the world, not only dictating the party's agenda, but dictating the party's agenda from safe, deep blue stronghold districts that are in no danger whatsoever of being lost to the Republicans, that makes them very uncomfortable and and justifiably so. And again, you always have this tension in a new majority party. We've seen this with the Republicans over the last decade, obviously, between those who feel like like, like they are the ones perpetuating the party's power. They are the ones keeping the party in the majority by practicing a form of pragmatism and by trying to govern responsibly. And those farther to their right in the Republicans' case who want to push for more ideological purity to please the base. And obviously, I think what we're seeing now, the, the, the real difference is that whereas it took the Republicans, you know, a good six or seven months to really become, you know, enmeshed in this civil war after taking the majority in 2010, this is happening at a relative light speed on the Democratic side. Just two months into their new majority, you're already seeing the long knives coming out. Tell me about Dean Phillips, former CEO, compromiser, seems like a hell fellow well met, met. Seems like the kind of guy who was maybe born in a sports jacket, kind of annoyingly says, I'm both pro-choice and pro-life. You want to smack him for that. But he also seems like, I think you used phrases like affable. Is he a compromiser or is he, let's not say and do crazy things so I could pretty much get uh, a democratic agenda passed, like an agenda that non moderate, but also non-flaming liberal Nancy Pelosi would like? You know, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, So I think that he is an interesting guy because if you closed your eyes and you talked to him, you would almost come away thinking, is he a Republican? You know, pro-business, big on fiscal responsibility, talked a lot during his campaign about the debt and the deficit and balancing the budget and how, you know, Washington is bankrupting America. And that's that's a talking point that you heard a lot from Republicans, obviously, uh, you know, over the past decade until they gained power. It's funny how that works, of course. But Dean Phillips is a guy who essentially built his entire campaign around notions of good government. So getting getting money out of politics, trying to crack down big time on campaign finance. Uh, He's, to my knowledge, the only member of Congress who not only is accepting no corporate PAC money, but also accepting no money from fellow members of Congress. Now, it should be told that, that you know, Dean Phillips is sort of like the Bruce Wayne of the Twin Cities. He's got a lot of money. So uh, <laughs> it's not the end of the world that he is refusing to take uh, contributions, campaign contributions from his Democratic colleagues. But the point yeah, he's trying I know, to when make- I know. When they're in trouble that, there, they put up the Dean signal and he comes calling. Yes, yeah, so That's that. right. The, <laughs> the wavy hair. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, look, I, I think that his heart is in the right place. And if you talk to him, he comes across as really genuine and really sincere. And he says, look, I'm not going to Washington to play a part in this kind of tribal political warfare that we've seen kind of inexorably escalating since the days of Lewinsky, right? I want to go to Washington to help heal these divides and to help bring down the temperature and to talk about things that we all should be able to agree on. And, you know, the the first big package the House Democrats were able to pass was H.R. 1, which is something that Dean Phillips had helped to champion. And he points to that and says, look, for all the noise and the fury and all the social media buzz around AOC and Omar and others, 
you know, the first big legislative accomplishment symbolically and substantively was passing H.R. 1, which is this kind of sweeping anti-corruption, good government, voting rights package that, that Democrats were very proud to put on the floor. And it had pretty much consensus support within the party. So Phillips is very much oriented politically and philosophically, and I think temperamentally, towards those sorts of things. And again, I don't know that that puts him in the minority, but at least vocally, it puts him in the minority. As I say in the piece, he's got like, you know, 8,000 Twitter followers and his neighbor next door, she's going on a million plus, right? Yeah. So there's there's obviously a disparity there in terms of who has a bigger microphone, who has a bigger megaphone to reach voters. Yeah, that is the big confounder of what you would always think, which is that let's do a head count. Okay, here's where the party is. Here's where our voters are. Here's the number of people who call themselves socialist or a socialist adjacent. And they'll have some say and get some resolutions and some either uh, lip service will be paid or, you know, actual programs will be paid. But their their importance is just not uh, as important as, you know, the vast majority of the Democratic Party. Then you introduce social media. And I think we all have to say, oh, yeah, that changes everything. But to what extent does it change everything, do you think? For, for me, social media has changed the entire game. And if you look back over the rise of Trump from the end of the Bush administration and the vacuum that opened up in the Republican Party and the Tea Party and the wars between Cruz and McConnell and Jordan and Boehner, all of this was building towards something. And for my money, the single biggest contributor to that was social media on the one hand and on the other hand, which I think they're two sides of the same coin, is the rise in asymmetrical media with the Breitbart.coms and the Mark Levin and Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh on talk radio in their ability to drive these wedges in the, in the Republican Party. And I do think you are seeing a pretty eerie parallel now on the left in this Democratic Party because of social media. Yeah. And it's not only an echo chamber, it's the denial of fact. And maybe it doesn't go on to quite the degree and quite as brazenly. But I think with uh, some of the AOC and certainly some of the Omar tweets and statements, we've at least seen an attempt to say that uh, what is black is white. I think what's interesting to note is that while they are on a little bit of an island in terms of what we're discussing here, they do represent a not insignificant portion of the progressive base of the Democratic Party that was dissatisfied and disillusioned with with parts of the Obama presidency and with the Democratic establishment. I mean, look at Bernie Sanders and, and the traction he gained in 2016. This is telling us something, that they are speaking to something very real that does exist in the Democratic base. And that's probably growing as a percentage of the Democratic base. But they're walking a very fine line here. And I think that if their goal is to realize these big bold, sweeping changes to the federal government and to American society in many cases, if that is their end goal, then I think there needs to be a recognition on their part that the way to get there is to elect a Democratic president. And yet it would seem on the surface, and it would certainly seem to some of their Democratic colleagues who I've spoken with about this exact thing, that what they're doing is in many ways sort of counterproductive. They are, in the words of one of Donald Trump's closest advisors, who I was speaking with about this the other day, they have allowed the White House to put socialism on trial and to to paint the entire Democratic Party with the broad brush of being radical and socialist to the point where Donald Trump, when running for reelect, can say, look, 
You might think I'm radical. You might think I'm crazy. But look at these other guys. They're radical. They're crazy. And I think that's a very real threat to Democrats. And I think it's something that some of the senior party leaders are trying to impress upon some of their younger members. And we saw Nancy Pelosi just yesterday talking about how impeachment would ultimately be counterproductive for this very reason, because it would help Donald Trump get reelected. So what happened with Omar is you quoted her accurately, and then she posted on social media, essentially taking issue with your quotes. But the very supporting evidence she provided really hoisted her by her own petard. And she has taken those tweets down. And I think now there was never any uh, question if the quotes were accurate, but I don't even think right now there was any pushback. But here's my question. I've been willing very much to give her the benefit of the doubt. I know how media and Washington works. And when you find a 10-year-old tweet and uh, try to take it into the context that is most damning, that's maybe not the best of fair play. However, I do have to say, at what point do we start to wonder what is going on here? Like that it's not anyone else's fault. And maybe not we. At what point do even members of the squad start to wonder you know, what are you doing and why are you doing it? When you are looking at the districts represented by the by the squad, Omar, Presley, Tlaib, AOC, these are four Democrats who represent four of the safest Democratic districts in America. And I think that when you are that ideologically insulated, I do think that it's very difficult to, for you to modulate in terms of your rhetoric, in terms of your policy, and certainly to appreciate the sort of broader spectrum of the Democratic Party and the districts like Dean Phillips, even though it's right next door to Omar's, I think that she probably doesn't have a real appreciation for the fact that if she were representing that district and if she had pulled what she's pulled over the last couple of weeks, she'd be a goner already. I mean, her she would be a surefire one-term congresswoman, but because she's in the district she's in, she's pretty safe, I think, even even though she's gotten herself in so much hot water over the first couple of months in her term. So I don't know if any of those four feel the sort of pressure internally as the rest of us looking from the outside certainly have have sensed and certainly would seem to assume that they should be feeling, if that makes sense. Yeah. And here's my last question. You like sports, right? Oh, yeah. That wasn't it. That was a prelude to my last question. Okay. <laughs> so they always do this thing. Whenever there's uh, even uh, chronicled uh, tension in a team or sometimes uh, an issue that the reporters think is a big issue that the team doesn't, they always talk about a distraction. Will it be a distraction? Is it a distraction in the locker room? And at least with sports, you could tell there's a record in a championship. So you see what the stuff is that distracts you. I mean, the stories about distractions are legion. With politics, it's a little more nebulous about what is or is and a distraction. On my show, I talked about how the Ilan Omar kerfuffle distracted from HR1. I wonder to what extent is that true, but it's a broader question than that. Is the distraction that she has been and maybe that that all of the squad and, and very liberal Democrats is their distraction tendencies really hurting and can it really hurt the Democrats' agenda? I think that it can. And I'm not saying that it has already, or at least that it has in, in a major, you know, lasting way already. But I think we're getting dangerously close. I think if you're a Democrat, you have to be very, very concerned that in the first couple of months of this Congress, not just on the style, right, not just with the tweets, but, you know, when, when at the State of the Union, I was talking with a couple of Democrats uh, the day after the State of the Union, and these are folks who do not like President Trump. They do not respect President Trump. They rarely have anything positive to say about President Trump. 
And they were talking in sort of hushed tones about how incredibly effective his line was about we will never be a socialist country and sort of setting that up as, you know, they view it as a false binary, of course, but as this dichotomy between these two parties that 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 one is, you know, here to defend free markets and defend your individual liberties and et cetera, et cetera. And the other is here to take over the entire economy and tell you how to live your life and whether you can eat a hamburger or not. And I think that that is something that while it's sort of wildly hyperbolic, it is something that poses a real threat to the Democratic Party. And, and, and don't take my word for it. In talking over the last few weeks with folks on the Hill and with a number of staffers for Democratic presidential campaigns, it's something that they are constantly wary of. I spent the weekend in Iowa traveling all across the state with a couple of the campaigns, talked to a lot of voters, and even really progressive Iowa voters were talking about, I heard the name AOC over and over and over again. Some of them liked her, but even those who liked her were saying like, boy, let's kind of pump the brakes here. Let's go slow. So I think it's the matter of a distraction, but also the matter of you know, keeping keeping the eye on the ball here, to use the sports metaphor, which is, you know, if the goal is to defeat Donald Trump, everything Democrats should be doing day in and day out should be sort of built in a very linear way toward the goal, everything in service of defeating Donald Trump. And anything that's not in service of defeating him should be viewed as a distraction. And I think that those... I think that that is the message from a lot of senior Democrats in the party to some of their 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 newcomers. But it doesn't seem as though at this point the message has sunk in. And whether it does over the next nine or 10 months, I think, is an essentially important question to whether or not Democrats are able to, A, feel the candidate who can beat Donald Trump and then, B, ultimately defeat him next November. Tim Alberta is chief political correspondent for Politico and author of American Carnage on the front lines of the Civil War and the rise of President Trump. So I guess from one party civil war to another thank you thank you Tim. <laughs> that's right thanks for having me guys and now the spiel paul manafort has been given a rather light sentence by a couple federal judges in the past few days and his time in lockup may be further lightened by yield presidential pardon you remember paul manafort he of the otherwise blameless life In their opening statement, prosecutors said Manafort failed to pay taxes on tens of millions of dollars earned from his lobbying work on behalf of Ukrainian politicians. He allegedly laundered the money through lavish purchases, including a $21,000 watch and a jacket made from ostrich. Well, to forestall the possibility of a presidential pardon serving as a get-out-of-jail-free card, which is ironic since it would come from a guy who bankrupted hotels on Boardwalk and Park Place in Atlantic City. So to complicate those efforts in inaccountability, the DA of Manhattan is seeking to bring charges against Manafort in state court. This way, a federal pardon won't help. Mary Harris of the award-winning What Next podcast heard on these Slate stations, and by the way, the recipient of the GIST Award for Best Pre-Dawn Daily Podcast, explained things in this chat with Fordham Law Professor Jed Sugarman. You're laying out this really careful strategy on Mueller's part, that he's really thinking of all the angles and sort of anticipating what might happen next. I'm wondering if there are any risks, though, of outsourcing some of this prosecution to sort of the local teams. Well, there is some risk in that he decentralizes control and he's got to trust them not to leak and he's got to trust that they're actually going to follow. So it seems that the idea of going after Manafort on state charges is a viable and legal remedy 
to the problem of a president who over pardons. But will the state charges stick? Will a state jury convict? Will a state judge sentence? Maybe yes, maybe no. But if they don't, if this ploy doesn't work, what is a seeker of justice to do in the case of State v. Manafort? Well, there is one jurisdiction from which no man can escape. When you have a malefactor and he's going to fly the coop, you don't take matters into your own hands and you don't let the feds or the state handle them. No, you take him to court. Ostrich court. Ostrich court, where justice is swift and earthbound. Oyez, oyez, all rise in ostrich court. The Honorable Judge Judy Struthio Camellius presiding. I know you've been sworn in. I have read your complaints. Mr. Downing, I know your client Mr. Manafort does not dispute the charges before him, and I would be inclined to throw the book at him, but for the inability of my large feather appendages to grip things. Do you have anything to say in your defense? Your Honor, Mr. Manafort is a man of simple tastes and from... Oh, no, you don't. Don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining. I understand, Your Honor. But the Ukraine is quite cold, and around election time, he needs proper sartorial defenses against the chill. Surely a coat made of cow leather or lamb's wool would not do. Don't serve me a three-pound omelet and tell me it's not my offspring. Very well, Your Honor. My client is not a flight risk. Who is? What I'm saying is that he has many fine qualities. I mean... When it comes to his good deeds, you can't just put his head in the sand. What? Oh, no, you didn't. Excuse me, Your Honor. I, I feel like I'm, I'm uh, digging a hole for myself here. Mr. Manafort has stuck his neck out to cooperate with investigators. That's enough. I ask the jury, what find you? The jury has spoken. Mr. Manafort, for high crimes and misdemeanors among ostrich kind, the Ukrainian people, the American public, vests, and hair pomade, they find you guilty of... Murder. The jury is made up of crows. Whenever 12 of them get together, the finding is usually... Murder. Murder? How do they find him guilty of murder? And this has been... Ostrich Court. That's it for today's show. The Just Producers, Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader, would like you to know that an ostrich does not actually sound like this. They actually sound like this. actual sound. Weird, huh? T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, points out that what you just heard was actually the male ostrich noise, the noise he uses as a mating sound, and perhaps we should have told you that before you played it over your Jeep's loudspeakers while on safari. Oh no, here come the lady ostriches. The gist. We never went to ostrich court, but we have served time in Minkwale Jail. Oomperu depru dupru. And thank you for listening.